Second Bananas is recorded on unceded Indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that Indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working in solidarity with them. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. It was like a 25 minute episode and the guest was Christopher Hitchens and he Ooh. picked he picked Leon Trotsky as his great life huh. and then there was like an expert dude who was like a historian who knew a, a whole bunch about Leon Trotsky and by the end of it Christopher Hitchens was like basically like just slamming the host and like well we could be about done here because if we really wanted to hear about why you were a Tory, then we could have been done 15 minutes ago. I mean, it would, it would have been a boring episode, but there you go. And he's like, well, no, what? you know, so why do you blah, 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 and going into, he's like, well, anyways, I've got to be somewhere at one. I've got to, I've got an appointment <laughs> with liver cirrhosis at 1 p.m. I don't have like, time. Oh, Chris Hitchens, why do you have to be such a shithead? <laughs> yeah, man. But anyways, he just, he had that like nonchalance of like, I don't need to be here. Yeah. A, you guys are a bunch of clowns <laughs> and he has this like roundabout way of being like well i suppose you were presented as the expert which would make me the amateur but i do <laughs> i do recall like reading in one of the blah 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 blahs whatever like some super um super niche like obscure document <laughs> yeah about like the revolutionary whatever that somebody wrote in some time in some place and the historian's kind of like, oh, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. He's like, well. <laughs> well, obviously, uh, you see, women aren't funny, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, they did ask him why he didn't pick Emma Goldman as his interesting <laughs> life. And I was like, I think I might know why he didn't pick yeah, her. Yeah, totally, 100%. <laughs> Oh man. Well, because yeah. was he an ex-Trotskyist? Because like a lot, yes. of, a lot of conservatives start as like trotskyists it's a weird like thing yeah yeah so, absolutely well the yeah. left the whole left opposition right like, yeah um, and it's funny because he was talking about that but then he he was that was just at the point where i think he had kind of left the left right <laughs> he, yeah he, he had abandoned the left he had abandoned marxism um <clears throat> or trotskyism and so he was kind of like yeah you know a lot of people in russia in that time who were part of the left opposition eventually went on to become neoconservatives <laughs> mm -hmm. because that was the natural evolution of being against that of being the opposition to you know the the state in that in that context yeah, or whatever yeah. right yeah it's pretty interesting I, I just i'm so torn about that fucking dude man i love his writing and i no, love the he's... way he fucking speaks and then i'm just like you're such a fucking ass yeah no it's, <laughs> yeah who who ruined you <laughs> and the answer is he did he yeah himself. no he's just like the, it's like that contrarian impulse that people it's like one of the worst impulses in like very smart people 
Mm. They just slowly want to just make sure that they're always like, 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 you know, on the side of like, well, actually, like they just want to be well, actually all the time. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And he, all he had was a very refined way of well, actually. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Anyways, hold on. All right, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, thanks, guys, and uh, let's yeah, uh, let's 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 jump into it. Uh, welcome everybody to Second Bananas, the podcast about history's greatest Garfunkels. I'm your host, Joe. Hi, I'm Wes, and I'm Craig. And today is a very special day in Banana Land. Yeah, Banana Banana the, Land. The, the Banana Banana Verse. The Banana Verse. I like Banana into Land. The, no, no. Banana yeah, I like land. Banana Land too. Banana Land, right, we're better. calling it Banana Land. Yeah, it is. It is a very special day in Banana Land. It is our twenty-fifth uh, episode, which is really great. We made it. We made it. We did. We've done twenty-five <laughs> episodes. We've actually done a lot more than twenty-five episodes if you count the pandemic episodes. I don't. And, yeah, that's uh, right. But you guys are welcome to if you want. I count them. You do most okay. things yeah. that occurred during the pandemic don't actually count. Yeah, it's true. That's right. Unfortunately, That's especially right. all those murders I committed. The murders uh, and and cheating. Those. Yeah. cheating yeah. during the Excuse pandemic doesn't me, count. What yeah. kind of monster do you think I am? <laughs> what Murder happened during the one pandy thing. stays in the pandy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can excuse murder, but not right. infidelity. <laughs> oh wait, uh, did you mean cheating on your diet? Yes. Yes. I cheated on my diet yes, a lot I during the pandemic. Did. Yeah, <laughs> man. So did I. Oh man, I think I put on a few. I was like in the best shape of my life. I think before the pandemic hit. Oh really? And I'm, I'm just really back was. to back to then, regular back old to West. I remember when you were going to Orange Theory a lot, and <laughs> yeah. you started getting the veins in your arms because you have lanky arms getting, anyway. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I was on my weight. I was at least hitting OT four. Yeah, for I was sure. In the gym. Yeah. That's why Orange Theory, right? OT. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that make oh my god, Wes! I just realized that. That's amazing. Nah, yeah, yeah, that's why I chose them as my gym. Yeah. This guy, this guy's playing a different game. He's, yeah, yeah. Get on his level. He's on a different the level. gym of Not choice the for same. Scientology superheroes. Uh, I'm gonna grab a beer. You guys keep talking. Yeah. yeah I got I, my beer right here, lined up. I feel like the old um, uh, muscle ratio to fat <laughs> my yeah. body is definitely taking a little bit of a recalibration over the last 18 I didn't, months and i didn't notice yeah. it because like my weight is my weight hasn't really fluctuated that much but i no, was coming it doesn't That's so yeah weird, right? it was weird but i was the thing that made me realize that i was going down i was coming down the steps in my house because I, I have stairs now and there's like a mirror fucking fancy man with his stairs. <laughs> and i also have a mirror i have reflective Mirrors, sur- steps <laughs> yeah. reflective surfaces guy? multiple Sorry. levels what are you a king an don't emperor mean, i don't mean to brag about my palace with its mirrors but listeners no, no, who don't on. live in vancouver may not understand this but <laughs> yeah so so yeah i was coming down the stairs with my shirt off because like I, i'm just like a buff dude <laughs> you had that, to mention well, that detail yeah. but that's my fine. shirt was off my i caught myself i caught my reflection in the mirror as coming down the stairs I was like oh shit's like jigglier than it used to be <laughs> um can we include a content warning please yeah shirtless, come on. Jiggling. shirtless jiggly males we should um please definitely need the sensory advisory on this episode <laughs> man if we had a content warning for every time there was a shirtless jiggly male There'd be like a few content warnings. We'd have um, a few. That would be a few. 
Wes, Damn. I'm sure, I'm sure you, I'm sure you will do fine. You're a dad. You're, you're allowed <laughs> to have dad bod now. What's well, my no, excuse? I thought that the kid was going to make me stronger because I'd be lifting him and like oh, bending, but I only have back problems now. He's only giving me back problems. <laughs> you're not lifting properly, buddy. You got to go back I, to not. That's a fact. That's. Ashley tells yeah. me all the time I'm not lifting with my legs, and I no, you disregard gotta start lifting it every the kid time. With your legs, especially as he gets bigger. Like right now, he's real tiny. Like he's yeah. just you can pick him up with like a hand, right? Yeah. Like you can pick him up with your hand by the hand. That's right. super safe. No, um, but like yeah, like soon it's pretty soon he's gonna be like wanting you to give him a piggyback ride, and you're just gonna be like, I oh, like oh, I got a hernia, <laughs> and he'll be well, like, Dad, what's a hernia? And then you'll have to explain what a hernia is. No, I'll just show it to him. I'll just lift up my shirt and go like, oh. He'll be like, ew, gross. Do it again. Hold on, son. I got to go to the hospital. But the weight weight increments go up so gradually with the kid as as he grows that you're going to get jacked and like all that dad strength. That's without right. even really realizing it because yeah. you'd be like oh yeah it's still like my little toddler guy my little guy still and then he's like twice the size as he was and you're still like oh yeah that's still. right while you're like ripping through your right. shirts and like, yeah and then like you come we finally crazy. hang out again and you slap one of us on the back and we fall over and <laughs> smash our face and you'll be like what what's what's going on you guys oh my god that's <laughs> I guess so you guys got weak during the panty <laughs> <laughs> that's so true it's like it's like weighted training gradual weighted mm-hmm. training without Mm-hmm. That's smart. I am going to get jacked again, I think. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah, plus, you know, it's going to go from like car seats and strollers to like, oh my God, car seats know, like weigh a ton. Tyco cars no and like, uh, yeah. And like, uh, taking the car seat in and out, it's like, damn, that thing weighs a ton. Wait till you buy him his first bike and you got to carry that everywhere. Because oh, <laughs> he's going to get tired of it. He's going to get bored of right. it at some point when you're halfway out for a walk and he's going to be like, Dad, can you carry my bike? And you're going to be like, Of course I will, son, because I am your slave. <laughs> no, I think I'd just ride it. Yeah. <laughs> just break. <laughs> well, if you're not going to ride it, son, I will. Oh, I'm having so much fun on the bike. Oh man! I seriously haven't ridden a bike in a while. I used to ride them around the seawall, like we'd rent bikes sometimes with friends. But I feel like I haven't ridden a bike in like four years. I feel like that, and it was like two days, right? Since I rode a bike, but <laughs> coming from riding a bike every day, everywhere to, you know, three or four times a week, yeah, yeah, it's like a pretty dramatic change along the same lines of what we're talking about, right? Just like a totally shift. <laughs> We're heading, we're heading back soon, I think. Yeah, studio, it's studio nice. Wise, Folks, it should be good. that's what it's sounding like. Soon we mm-hmm. will be back. Right now we're on Zoom. We're all talking in separate rooms. Soon we'll be soon. back together in one room. Soon. It's going to be fun. It will be very fun. And we will have so much fun. Uh, we'll have so but much for fun. now, we'll have fun apart. Yeah. Do you know, you know speaking of fun... Yeah. Speaking of fun, the Russian Revolution. <laughs> oh, fun for uh, all involved. Fun. I mean, uh, absolutely no conflict think, or struggle. No, pretty clean cut. It's pretty. Yeah, one of the smoother revolutions I've heard. Definitely, of. definitely. <laughs> well, you yeah. know what they say: a revolution is just like a sewing circle or writing a poem. Um, it goes smooth and it's easy every time. And it's a nice, fun hobby you can do with anyone. <laughs> But yeah, today, 
we are talking about the second bananas of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, or V.I. Lenin, as he's more commonly known, uh-huh. uh, leader of the October Revolution of 1917, and cool guy. Totally Real bald. cool guy. He's got like a bald, sexy dude thing going on. He was played by Patrick Stewart in that BBC show Fall of Eagles, which, uh, you know, probably the he- best part of that whole series. And I, I thought he played, he looked, at least in the screenshot you sent me, he looked like a pretty convincing Lenin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah, the it's, role he was born to, stretch, to physically yeah, play. Yeah. Like, a ball, like, yeah, he had the hair already. Had the hair, the mustache and everything. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Ma- features. Uh, my guy that I covered, uh, Martov, is in one of the episodes of that series. So uh, you can uh-huh. check that out. It's all on YouTube. But yes. So we decided for the 25th episode, we do something a little special, kind of like we did with Art Garfunkel for the 10th episode. And we picked three second bananas to Lenin. Um, I got uh, Julius Martov. And I got Leon Trotsky. And I'm taking Joseph Stalin. Wes drew the short straw. So if anyone gets canceled today, it will be Wes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And then then, I say that and then it cuts to like 20 minutes into the podcast where Wes is like, so Stalin did some bad stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to stop you right there, Wes. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. <laughs> don't make don't make Joe go tanky on us. Don't make me go full tanky on you. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I will. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, but yeah, yeah, um, a little bit about uh, Lenin. He was a cool guy. He's bald. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he is the godfather of Marxist Leninism. Uh, he wrote some good books like uh, What Is to Be Done and State and Revolution. And he led a successful revolution and overthrow of the czarist and capitalist forces in Russia that led to the establishment of the Soviet Union, the world's one of the world's largest and longest running uh, communist governments. And then he died and then he left it to other people and they kind of fought over it. And then one of them took over and then some more stuff happened. And then the country was infiltrated and slowly became capitalist again. So, did you know that he had an elder brother who was also a revolutionary, who was arrested and executed yeah. by the czar for trying to bomb somebody? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that had something to do with him radicalizing? I mean, stars? Maybe a little. I don't know. Couldn't be that much. But yeah, but I they think were, it might have played into it. They were a middle class, like they were a, a, a bourgeois. Family, totally totally um with a revolutionary bent yeah. somehow mm. at least at least amongst the sons from all evidence yeah and uh yeah he was like he was like he was also known like even back in high school he was known as kind of being a bastard who was always right that was but he didn't it's like he had a lot of admirers but he didn't have a lot of friends <laughs> was mm. the common quote about him um which, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense. But I think like what's kind of like special about Lenin is he really was like that. Everyone said he was like 24 seven about the revolution. Right. Which I think is important and uh, pretty cool. Uh, Wes, do you want to talk about Lenin before we get into it? Do you have anything, have anything you else add? about Lenin? No. Yeah. I, that, I think that was a, an interesting point that Craig brought up that because I, I didn't know that it was kind of like his brother was a big kind of revolutionary and he was kind of following in his brother's footsteps so it's like you wonder if his brother uh hadn't been executed if he would have been an even more prominent you know um revolutionary figure than than lenin that's all that's like interesting because like i think the russian revolution is so huge and complicated that like 
there's so many ways you can wonder how it would have gone differently. Like, I think like that'll come up a lot in mine as well. Like um, some of the decisions made and stuff like that, but like, you know, like it's both like, um, you know, why did the Bolsheviks win over everyone else? You know, why did Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky win out over say the other factions that were also anti-capitalist versus like, and like, you can't obviously just point to one thing, but it's like, how would things have gone differently if, x or y hadn't happened when it did right or like if yeah. they had made different decisions yeah because um, based on like what i was reading a lot of it was uh seizing the opportunity to yeah big to time. do something yeah well case in point a lot of these like even lenin himself wasn't in the country when yeah right, exactly he was exiled at that point yeah or, like like when 1917 took uh went down oh yeah they like came back yeah, they, everyone, they just, everyone's kind of like, oh, shit, back. it's popping off. What's happening? Let's get in there. Yeah. Right. I'm not sure if that was exactly the case in 1905, but I know well, even then, like, for I a think couple that's... of them, at least it was. They were like, ooh, look, <laughs> look what's yeah. happening. Ooh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, guys, let's let's go, come back on. to Russia. Yeah, I think they practically uh, missed the revolutions on most cases. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, too, like, Craig, to your point, um, like, the 1905 revolution is a great example. Like, you know, I think like if you trace the roots back of everything, it starts in like the 1800s, like the early 1800s with like other groups that aren't Marxist or whatever, you know, like um, Narodnia Volya and People's Will and all these things that we'll kind of get into. We could, that'll, that'll get very distracting, but um, there's I, so I, much to distract yourself with in these hmm. narratives. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. totally. It's well, that's the thing. It took almost a hundred years, essentially. Like it took like a good 80, 90 years to go from like the first stirrings of this to like the 1917 right. October revolution. Like it took like most right. of their lives, right? Yeah. Like Lenin was like in his teens when he first started like getting involved and it took, it took him till he was like in his like late thirties, early forties to even succeed. Right. Like, you know, it's a long view that you have to take for this kind of yeah. stuff. And like, we're all three of us are sort of covering like most of these guys' lives. So that was the challenge for me was condensing it in a way that didn't like lose key points and sort of lose the the context that it's in. Because like, there is a very specific context that this is in. And it's important for people to remember that and, and see through all the stuff that's talked about that like, this was like such a different time from the times we live in, in some ways. And in other ways, it was almost the same, right? It's like, there's so yeah. many weird things that, that feel so like similar to what we're going through in our times right now, but also things yeah. that are clearly so different. Right. Um, and I, I think that's the big, and that's the big thing with, I guess, Marxism in general, I think it kind of, the whole ideal is that the means of production kind of, as they change, like the society kind of needs to change with it, yeah, but then certain rules are going to seem outdated and like, you can't, you're not keeping up with like the changing times and then the material conditions. Exactly. Yeah. Totally, and so yeah. it's like, it's just changing modes of production, like kind of naturally brings up these like revolutionary cycles kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Because there's disenfranchisement, there's externalities with mm-hmm. each, yeah. with each kind of incremental growth of technology or whatever innovation. Um, yes. And the more people who are externalized from the system, the more disenfranchisement exists in society and the more revolutionary exactly. spirit yeah. develops. Yeah. Right. And that's part of, at least from my understanding, you know, Marx 
posits that that is the fuel for a revolution. Right. Yeah. Is that disenfranchised worker and the power of the organized worker to fight back against maybe that disenfranchisement, but even to take it as a proactive thing of like seizing yeah. those means and then harnessing that power for the the most numerous majority in society, which is workers. Yeah. Right. And exactly. that's the, that's the yeah. whole well, and, idea. But that's, that's interesting because at this, that's one of the historical contexts uh, that we taught, we need to talk about kind of is that that time, even like both at the time of Marx's writing and even when Lenin was really getting big on like writing all his stuff, like the, the urban worker was not the majority in society mm-hmm. the way we right. are now, like Marx, like that's not a, in Russia. Yeah, particularly not in Russia. And it's interesting because like I was thinking about this before, and this is kind of a tangent that I don't want to spend too much time on here, but like the two most notorious and successful revolutions in the world are countries that were majority peasants. And and both of them, in both of them, the peasants kind of played different roles. But like, I think China is a great example where the peasants were actually like more key to the ultimate success of the revolution than like, the working class was in a certain way, like the working class and the communist party obviously sort of like saw this peasant revolution and were like, Hey, like, let's, let's work with them. And like, cause they're suffering the same way we are. It's, it's just like, whatever. Whereas like, I think the Russian revolution had a much more like complex and ambivalent relationship with the peasants. And especially like, I think they were a little more cause they, you know, like the whole kulaks thing or whatever, like uh-huh. it just, it's, it's interesting how that kind of interface with it all and made challenges for them that we don't really have to consider in that way today. Or yeah. Do. I mean, I, that's the thing. Cause it is, it's really interesting to look at it now because we're again now at this point, you know, in, in human history, I think at the crux of another like change, like, have modes of production with heavily automation and yeah. you wonder if we're going to see this sort of thing again like because Marx like advocated he's like and that's the thing that I think he found so frustrating and what like why he he was so compelled to like to to write his communist manifesto and, and oh wait did he yeah he did communist yeah, 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 was, yeah. was because he saw he saw that we're more productive than ever people should have we should have more abundance than ever yet like exactly we right. keep seeing like all, all this all this excess profit like float to the top and not not yeah. be dispersed among like everyone that all the workers that are essentially making it possible for this to happen and so well i think too like yeah. what you said craig about lenin being a um a member of the bourgeoisie or at least the petite bourgeoisie or whatever you want to call it like um in their time both marx and lenin like there was also still the aristocracy and that was actually the the Russian Revolution really had a good thing in that they had this like incredibly vain and and sort of like like um self-focused or sort of self-aggrandizing ruler who had absolute authority who just kept like crushing any kind of democracy and making the lives worse and completely not understanding like even like compared to like the 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 owning class and the bourgeoisie because he was fighting with them too right the czar and like they had that ultimate enemy to sort of like point like point at and be like we got to get rid of this guys because like he's fucking shit up he's got this crazy monk like having sex with his wife and telling her what to do and she's telling him what yeah. to do and like, are you talking about uh, rasputin, rasputin or who yeah. we should probably do an episode on eventually but <laughs> yeah but yeah i think like but to your point craig about like 
Lenin and even Martov too. Um, Stalin is actually one of the only ones that doesn't, it was more of like an actual like worker. Yeah. Um, Cause Trotsky was, was middle-class yeah. as well. And like, it, there's a little bit of that, like they see what they have and then they go out among the workers and they see what the workers have. And they're like, these guys do everything. Why aren't, why don't they have the wealth that my family does? And that was part of it is like, they could see, like there were like peasants, especially in Russia who couldn't see better conditions for themselves, or at least not like, like better conditions, the way that they were conceived of. Like, there's a bit of that, like the Buddha, like, you know, like going out the Bodhisattva or whatever, going out into the world and experiencing suffering for the first time, like real suffering and realizing like, they've been sheltered their whole lives too. Right. It's kind of like, and again, they had kind of the revert. The Buddha was more like, well, that's just going to happen. And that's, you got to like transcend that shit. Whereas like these guys were like, no, fuck no, we should all get that shit. Like give us that shit. Like give everybody that shit. We just need to Mm -hmm. reorganize society completely and get rid of the leeches who suck all the blood out of everything and take the most for themselves. Right. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's got to wake up the sheeple. Wake up the sheeple. Wake up sheeple. That's all it takes. Stop sleeping. <laughs> Sleepy sheeple. All right. So um, yeah, I guess we'll get into, I've been procrastinating because I don't want to start, but I'll start. Go, um, go. Yeah. The first, first guy here we're going to talk about is uh, Julius Martov, AKA Yuli Osipovich Zederbaum. Um, nice pronunciation. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're he's one of my people. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Uh, Julius Martov uh, was born, he's a Jew. He is a Russian, uh, well, yeah, Russian Jew, essentially. Um, he was a political revolutionary who uh, worked with the RSDLP, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, uh, with Lenin, and uh, uh, ultimately became the leader of the Mensheviks, who were sort of the the split within the communist party oh. between the the bolsheviks and the mensheviks okay. and we'll, I didn't we'll know get he into led that them. sorry yeah that's yeah, well, he was I one of the leaders. Okay. they had a lot of people and i don't want to name them all because then it will just get confusing but like hmm. um there wasn't just lenin and stalin and trotsky like there were many people involved in uh the rsdlp and uh it, in iskra and and all those things and we'll kind of get into it, but I kind of wanted to simplify it just to keep it from going. Uh, but who was Julius Martov? Um, his family were middle-class Jews from actually originally from uh, Constantinople, AKA Istanbul. Wes, you can put the music in here for the 15 Istanbul seconds to allowed. Constantinople. Okay. <laughs> Wide Constantinople, get the works. That's nobody's business but the Turks. Um, so he Lovely. was born in the year 1873. Um now, I don't know if you guys knew this, but the 19th century, there was this big new hot thing called uh, nationalism. Oh, that was the new hotness. Yeah, okay. it was the new hotness then, thanks to a number of bourgeois revolutions all over mm. Europe. And it spread pretty quickly across not only Europe, but the Near East and the Middle East. And um, it came to the Ottoman Empire. And um, unfortunately, with the rise of Arab nationalism in the uh, Ottoman Empire, there was sort of this renewed uh, anti-Semitism. And that's actually like something that doesn't get talked about with nationalism a lot mm. is uh, how it kind of generally tends to come with uh, 
a certain amount of xenophobia against people mm-hmm. that aren't part of your national whatever mm-hmm. and uh, a really good enemy when nationalists need to all unite to get behind each other is someone who doesn't have a nation such as the Jews mm. um, now again I don't want to like single the Ottoman Empire out because na- uh, anti-Semitism was a problem across Eurasia um, particularly in Europe it was much worse so that's what's kind of funny is they decided to move to Russia <laughs> um, from the Ottoman Empire. They crossed the Black Sea into the Ukraine, a place that has never been known for anti-Semitism whatsoever. <laughs> checks out. Yeah, uh-huh. checks out. Um, yeah, basically like Julius Martov uh, or Yuli, as he was known at this point, um, his early life was deeply shaped by anti-Semitism. Um you know, the, the czars, the rulers of Russia, they had this whole thing called uh, orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationalism. So basically, you got the church, you got the uh, God-ordained czar ruler of, of the nation of Russia, and then you've got nationalism, which is pride in being Russian or whatever. Um, and so it just so happens that when you have a, uh, a, a theocracy, that is based around a country, suddenly uh, a religious and ethnic minority with no nation of their own uh, becomes a real nice target for bad, for blame, blaming for bad things. Um, so in school, Martov and other Jewish students were picked on by not only the students, but their teachers as well. In his biography, there's numerous stories of the teachers singling him out and sort of like putting him through the ringer until he messed up and then being like, well, what do you expect from a Jew? basically um and the kids kind of that's not nice no not nice and um luckily there were other jews in a lot of his classes um and so they managed to sort of he's i think that was very early for him realizing oh you know if i stick with together with people who are being trod on we can actually have like some kind of mm. uh, defense against them organizing you know, numbers organizing yeah. hmm yeah mm. Um, that's actually a thing because like, I don't know if you guys know this, but, uh, a lot of people also love to point out how many Jews are also communists and socialists. And because, you know, Jews are nasty and evil and they want to spread communism to destroy the family. Commie. Uh, He's a commie. But, uh, maybe Jews are really into communism and socialism because they know that if you stick together, you have a lot more power. Yeah. It's <laughs> um, fair. It's fair. Fair assumption. But, yeah, another big thing about Martov, and this will play into more later, um, he had a big thing about sort of like, quote unquote, decency was a word he used a lot in Russian from an early age. Um, a famous story is that his his mother, his, his family had hired a wet nurse to nurse his uh, little sister, which, you know, normal thing at the time, kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but like the wet nurse that got news that her own child had died uh back in her village and she started she and and her uh julius's mother bought her a scarf as a way of being like i'm really sorry your kid died here's a nice scarf and he was just disgusted by that and he laid into her he was like how can you give her a scarf when her child has died because she can't feed it that was sort of his like reasoning Mm -hmm. right so interesting interesting yeah um, that's it's probably uh 
core memory moment for yeah. him. Yeah, totally. That's that's his that's the him getting rid of one of his thetans or whatever, <laughs> or getting back one of his thetans. How do the thetans work? Again? I think they want to get rid of them. They want to get rid of them. Okay, so that's trying to climb the OT ladder. That was a thetan just like shooting right out of the top of his head with a cloud of steam, like in a cartoon. Now you've got me confused. Damn it! I'm gonna have to revisit the teachings of Elrond after this. (laughs) We'll come back to it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What's going on? Quickly, uh, just going back to the czar, the czarist state, and the antisemitism. Yeah, man. I heard that the and i'm gonna butcher the name of this document but it's like a conspiratorial like anti-semite uh, the protocol thing. the, the protocols you. of the learned elders of zion yeah and mm. that came from czarist russia right that initiated yeah. kind of around this time it this. was actually so what's funny is like the actual history of that was um there was like a satire written by a jew and then a German anti-Semite read that satire and thought, why don't I just make this, but unironically. Right, right. And then yeah, yeah. it kind of got forgotten, but then like the Russians found it and they recycled it. And there were like newspapers, like anti-Semitic newspapers that were actually being funded by um, the czarist secret police, uh, the Okrana, which, um, which were printing like tons of anti-Semitic papers. And it eventually came out and one of the chief of police, the head of the chief of the secret police had to kind of take the blame for right. it. Right. Um, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. Crazy. yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, yeah, like Russia was deeply anti-Semitic at the time. And the, the, the whole czar, the czars were very like, like Nicholas and his wife were very anti-Semitic, uh, very racist overall, not just against Jews, like Jews were, but Jews were sort of the internal enemy, right? So that's the other problem is it's like a double whammy of like, not only are individual uh, Russians racist towards you, but the 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 regime is actively like turning a blind eye or even sometimes like financially supporting these pogroms against your people, right? Right. So. And playing like using the media and the state apparatus to play the society in at large against this minority yeah, like, as like a, oh we're not popular like let's blame something else on the jew on the jewish russian population and like get totally, everyone all worked yeah. up and distracted about how shitty we are well your wages ru- are down because of those damn jews they keep yeah, taking all our gold exactly. we just we can't afford to pay you <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah echoes, echoes into today yeah mm. totally <laughs> um so oh, man Luckily, Martov's father was sort of part of this group of um, uh, Jewish intelligentsia, and they would get together to not only discuss politics and current events, uh, they would often curse the czar and his ministers, which I love. I love that detail. (laughs) Just like like, uh, fucking the czar and that damn minister of finance. We curse him. Curse him. (laughs) Spit. Um, And that kind of got Martov going. He started joining his father's group. Um, they would name books and he would go and read them and he sort of learned, and they would also talk a lot about the other revolutionary groups in Russia, like the people's will and all that stuff. Um, who like, you know, had been like there, there had been other groups like people's will was a famous one because they were engaging in assassination campaigns and they had actually managed to kill Alexander the second. So that was like a big thing for, for, uh, Martov when he read about that, he was like fascinated and he sort of, <laughs> right. He read all this literature as he grew up, became a teenager, went to university, um, and particularly at first on like the French Revolution and stuff like that. And then he found other socialist stuff. So 
by this point, he's got this kind of romantic view of revolution of like this beautiful struggle or whatever. Right. <clears throat> and uh, him and his little seditious circle of Jews and socialists all agitating and distributing literature in, in school, uh, sort of repeating what his father did, but taking it a step further as young people are want to do. And of course he gets himself arrested. Classic, mm -hmm. classic situation here. Not his, too much of a stir. He, yeah, he, he, not his last time getting arrested either. So, but yeah. um, the, this was the first time. So what he did have was a grandfather who would pay 300 rubles to bail him out of jail. Sounds like a lot. Uh, that is a lot. By comparison, the average worker in the year 1879 earned about 25 rubles a month. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> shit, man. That's like, whoa. That's like eight months salary. Yeah, yeah, dude. It's they. Yeah. So like, that's a lot. And um, they basically said, well, you can leave the country or we can send you somewhere. And he chose to go into exile in Lithuania, in Vilna, which is now Vilnius, I believe. And it's actually been called the Jerusalem of Northern Europe because of its Jewish culture. So he gets sent mm -hmm. to this place where there's a lot of Jews and he experiences the Russian famine of, of 1881. I wrote 1981 on my document here, but it's 1881. Mm -hmm. um, 1981 was a different famine if there was one. But uh, yeah, um, and he sort of credits that as convincing him that Marxism was the thing for him. Um, the classic quote is, it suddenly became clear to me how superficial and groundless the whole of my revolutionism had been until then and how my subjective political romanticism was dwarfed before the philosophical and sociological heights of Marxism. Wow. And uh, that's a pretty great quote. I think it's a good example of someone actually experiencing the material conditions of the poor and working class and, you know, kind of having the scales drop from their eyes, right? And realizing like exactly why Marx said what he did and all that stuff, you know, pretty cool. Pretty Yeah, I mean, interesting. Other than the starvation. The starvation isn't cool. No, but. of course not. But it's like the difference between being radicalized ideologically and maybe it's still called being radicalized if it's like, I, I don't know, if it like strikes to the essence of your ability to survive. <laughs> and then yeah, totally. Like, Whoa, hang on. This is real. Like, yeah. this is like really real. This is no longer <laughs> hypothetical. Totally. This is no longer a theoretical... Yeah revolutionary yeah. struggle this is no longer yeah. me romanticizing like blowing up the czar with a bomb right. it's like yeah it's like like i want to blow up the czar because he's such a fucking jew hater like fuck that guy it's like all of a sudden <laughs> right. like i want to blow up the czar because he is responsible for millions of people looking like fucking skeletons and dying in front of <laughs> yeah. him right, right, right. like yeah, yeah. like this is like marxism um, is is hitting hard and yeah, and again, the material conditions and seeing like a starvation and and then probably at the same time seeing, hearing, like getting letters from his own family being like, oh no, we have less butter than last year. What will we do? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, by me. the way, how's exile going? Yeah, how's exile going? <laughs> what did you do today? I saw a man shit out his own intestines, mother. I don't, please stop telling me about the butter. <laughs> <laughs> please send some butter. <laughs> yeah, please send lots of butter. Um, but of course he would also realize that it wasn't enough just for rich people to send butter. The butter must be liberated and given to everyone. The workers <laughs> must retain control of the butter. It has to be spread around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Wes nailed it. So, um, 
Speaking of butter, I don't know. Um, uh, in Vilna, he met another Jew, a wonderful man named Arkady Kremer, who is known as the father of the Bund. Uh, the Bund is like a whole fucking deal. It's a bunch of Jewish socialists uh, who were also kind of Jewish nationalists, um, although they did reject Zionism. As you can see, I could probably go down a whole rabbit hole about the Bund and I won't get into it too much. Suffice to say, they were um, a group of Jewish socialists who believed, wanted to organize specifically the Jewish working class and uh, were one of the first groups to um, translate, uh, put socialist literature into Yiddish in order to get the, because especially in mm -hmm. Vilna, there's this large population of Jewish workers who are all working in the factories and stuff and they saw an opportunity um, to sort of radicalize them and also use a language that maybe the um, the the police couldn't understand. Um, right. Great thing, actually. And I think like kind of an under talked about thing is like, um, especially nowadays, is like translating literature into other languages. Yeah, for um, sure. I think that's especially there. There must be like, what is what's the main well, like, Russian, been, I guess. But in Lithuania, it... I don't know if I think it's Lithuanian, oh, okay. but I don't know what the language they would have definitely spoken Russian because they would have been part of the Russian Empire. Yeah, sure, too. like Russian would have been like the the sort of like the trade language as well that everybody used. Yeah, but trade. I mean, like all the like, I guess this is still part of like larger, like huge Russia. But there were so many different provinces that I think had their own languages within. Yeah, oh, for, for sure. sure. There would have been dialects, yeah. and there's still tons of different countries that had their own yeah. Like, yeah. heritage and background that was not necessarily Russian. So yeah, that, that would have still been, fell under that. Yeah, that would have been huge. Just translating these texts of ideologies, I think. Well, yeah, into especially like working class Jews, that right? Because these understand. are not Jews that necessarily like interface a lot outside of their own communities, or if they do, it's like they speak like you know, like they know enough English. So that they don't lose their fingers in the fucking mills or whatever, right. right? Or that they can like they know what the overseer at the farm is telling them to do. They can't have a conversation, and they certainly can't read like fucking Karl Marx, who like I love Karl Marx. I think he's great, but he's not known for using small words. No, very dense, uh, yeah, very, um, very inaccessible. Hmm. Yeah, writing for sure. And uh, so, um, Kremer and Martov write a pamphlet called On Agitation. And this is sort of the first time that someone's really advocating for what was going on at the time in sort of Russian left circles was like, how do we foment the revolution? And a lot of groups were going about it. The uh, like, we need to make small cells, start shooting the czar and his family and stuff like that and killing people in power. And what that will do is sort of like pop off the revolution. The problem was that wasn't working because at the time the peasants were like very religious, obviously. And uh, they loved the czar. Even the peasants that were suffering were often just like, well, yeah, like obviously like this magistrate or this baron is a fucking moron. But like once the czar hears about it, he's going to come down and like, like whip this guy into shape. That was like often yeah. the refrain they heard. We just got unlucky with this, that we got this. Yeah, it's not the czar's here. fault. It's this yeah. bureau bureaucracy, right? It's the big bureaucracy. Famous, famous conservative aphorism of, of blaming the bureaucracy. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think like there was definitely some of that, but what they did was they wrote a pamphlet called on agitation, um, which we'll link, I've got the link in the document, but basically what it did was say like, what we need to do is we need to start training people for revolution and how we're going to do that is by organizing them to strike 
and make small gains in their workplace, like get better working hours. And what that'll do is twofold. One, it will make it easier for them to do more because they won't have as precarious conditions. They'll be able to think more and like, and like, you know, like, like sort of see the larger system. B, they will learn the practicalities of actually seizing power, even on a smaller scale, which will then bring them on a global, global scale. And it'll also, you know, it's just like one of those things that like the truth is like organizing your workplace, even if it's small, can teach people that there's more out there, right? Like people don't realize what they can achieve until they work together. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing was, it worked. Like um, they started doing this with the Jewish workers and it got the attention of not only the Bund, but also the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party or RSDLP, which was a non-Jewish organization of socialists, um, Marxist study groups and stuff like that. And um, it basically was kind of this pamphlet, whether everyone read it or not, and uh, Kremer and Martov's actions essentially like shifted the, the, the conversation from like, we need to make these little cells and like go out and like teach the people and like, you know, blow up, you know, the white army or whatever. And like it shifted it to, no, we need to educate, we need to agitate, educate and organize. That's what we need to do. Or maybe it's Mm -hmm. educate, agitate, and organize. I can't remember, but that was basically (laughs) the the program. And and it worked. And that, in turn, brought Martov to the attention of Lenin. Mm, And it brought them into each other's circles. Because um, uh, the Bund were socialists. And, of course, they were internationalists. So they were were like, yes, obviously, we have to uh, advocate for Jewish workers. But non-Jewish workers, we have more in common with them than we do with, say, like a Jewish aristocrat which didn't really exist or like a jewish bourgeoisie right and like by this point like martov had kind of abandoned that bourgeois whatever and he was definitely fully in for like emancipating the working class right so you see this change come over the groups and um martov and lenin started talking they were like hey you know there's all these groups and all these study circles and this thing uh what we need to do is get them all together and start working working together and organize even more workers in a larger group, more than just these workers in Vilna. We need to do it in St. Petersburg. So they moved back to St. Petersburg and they found the League of Struggle for the Emancipation of the Working Class. And just so you guys know, there's about five more of these types of names before the end. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, they get real fun. Uh, it's just like, you know, it's funny that like people sort of say like, oh, the left always like splinters and eats itself. But it's like, well, they were doing that when they won too. So... Yeah. What's the problem here? <laughs> that's not no? the down. That's not their downfall. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Long names isn't the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Long reorganized names from the last sect that they were in yeah. <laughs> are hardly the biggest problem. Yeah. I mean, their biggest thing was like they didn't get lost. Like this is kind of a thing that we'll get into. Is like they didn't want to split hairs. They weren't in, they were like, we need, we have an enemy and we need to organize against it. That is the thing here. Big tent. Like, and it wasn't just like anyone can come in no matter what they believe. It was like, no, if you come in here, you better start doing this shit that we're doing. But it was not like, Hey man, I've got this book here, like this book written by this Karl Marx guy. And if you don't read it, you can't be a part of my club. It was not like that. Right. It was like, Hey man. Yeah. Come on in. Like you're a worker. Come on, let's do this. Okay. By the way, have you read this like pamphlet? Have you read uh, wage labor and capital? You know, have you read like whatever, et cetera. Have you read on agitation, man, on agitation is my fucking jam, dude. Check it out. 
right? Like they, um, yeah. And, and, or even just like, and it's like the act of organizing changes you, the act of that kind of doing that stuff also like will bring about changes in you. And they, and not to say that like there weren't imperfect things or people didn't come to weird conclusions, but it's like, they needed that. They needed just to like, and I think like to another point on that, it's like, this is part of the thing that will come up that I think what I want to say before we get to the really crazy shit that happened is like, it was illegal to read a lot of these books. You could go to jail for reading books. We don't have that in this time. Like it was such a different world in the day to day in that sense of like, you could, you could go to jail for just being like, yeah, I don't like the czar. That guy's kind of a dick. Like mm-hmm. that could get you in jail. Mm-hmm. Oh you know? yeah, so, absolutely. And there was the surveillance was absolutely like at that yeah. time was cutting edge. It was like the leading state surveillance and like state, um, kind of governed or restricted media and all that stuff was yeah. like the czar which the is, czarists had control over all that and there the secret police was like the most innovative controlling mechanism incredibly funny because the rest of the country point. was asked backwards but somehow they could justify yeah you know, spending exactly. all this money on like printing anti-semitic papers and like literally inserting secret officers into like every marxist group they could find right, right like exactly huh i wonder funny how that works <laughs> not at all like today no, no no that doesn't happen in america or canada no you're all free all. <laughs> so yeah um they managed to organize this huge strike in St. Petersburg, uh, May 1986. It lasts three weeks and it spreads to 20 other factories. Um, and that freaks everybody out. That's like, holy shit. Wow. Now, the strike was interesting because one of the things they had was also largely the support of the owners. Part of the reason the strike worked was because the owners were like, yeah, we'll still pay you guys. Don't worry. We're pissed at the czar, too. That was actually part of it was that like they were actually in and not to say that they like that's what every strike should be but it was like there was this sense of like being united against the czar and it was like it freaked the czar and his agents out and so of course what they do is they exile all those guys out of the country get the fuck out so <laughs> Lenin and Martov go to Stockholm, but of course they're like, oh no, totes, we'll just, we'll stop. No, we're, we're going to Stockholm. We won't bother you anymore. And then they got to Stockholm and they were like, not. Nobody laughed. I mean, I got Guys, it. I worked I... on that joke for hours. No, yeah. Um, I love a good knot. Yeah. Not. Um, Wes, you didn't laugh at my second knot. Come I on, mean, on. I needed the context, but yeah. Okay, fine. So yeah, in Stockholm, that's where they actually found Iskra, which is the party paper of the RSL, RSDLP. RSDLP. I'm going to say it a few more times. Um, Russian Social Democrat Labor Party. Yeah, that's correct. And um, they continue to organize with the RSDLP and write in Iskra. And actually, Martov was the biggest contributor to Iskra of all of them, even over Lenin. He had more articles than Lenin. Um, Lenin was like a close second followed by like another guy named Georgi Plekhanov. And then everyone else, even Trotsky was like hundreds of articles behind them. Um, to be fair to Trotsky, everyone else had a bit of a head start on him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And he was also like, yeah, Trotsky was one of the only guys that actually like went back to Russia for 1905 as well. Like Trotsky was kind of a doer as, and I guess we'll get into that more, yeah. Oh, yeah. but, uh, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so they're, they're writing this paper, they're organizing. They have a nice little Congress, the first Congress of the RSDLP. That all goes according to plan. Uh, it's great. Lenin and Martov are cracking beers and, and, you know, like talking about bro stuff and about what they're going to do when they rule, when the czar is deposed and stuff like that. Um, it's really great. And then really they have great. the second Congress in 1902. And that's where it all kind of starts to go wrong. Um, not wrong per se, but I think it's really interesting because it is like, in a sense, like you can, it is a really, all of the disagreements they have, you can see both sides and you can see why they believe what they believe. But at the same time, <clears throat> you see, it's hard, it's hard just to be like, well, Lenin was right or Martov was right. But, um, there's a few, there's not really one thing. There's a few things that happen. And the first one is the Bauman affair. I don't know if you guys read about this or know about this at all. No, I didn't. There's this agent named Nikolai Bauman and his job is to smuggle communications and weapons in and out of, uh, from Stockholm to Russia is what I understand. Um, and so Bauman, a uh, very handsome guy. If you look at his pictures, um, got like a nice little fucking devil mm -hmm. mustache and everything. Um, very, very man pretty. Um, he has an affair with another party member's wife. She gets pregnant by Bauman. And she kind of goes to him and is like, what the fuck am I going to do? And his amazing, perfect, beautiful response is to draw a nasty cartoon of her as the Virgin Mary and harass her and drive her to hanging herself. Oh, Sweet. how delightful. <laughs> cool guy. Right? guy. Totally a guy Jesus. you want to hang around with. Yeah. So, <laughs> so wow, yeah. He's right? the equivalent of a pickup artist. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so um, Bauman does this and it kind of whatever, but the story starts, this was like in 1897, he started the affair. It lasted till like the whole affair lasted from like 1897 to 1899 by 1900 it starts to get out and it really comes to a head at the 1902 congress the second congress because bauman's there he, he leaves russia and he comes and it comes up at a meeting um martov and some other members are like you got to kick him out like we can't have this in the party we can't be this and lenin is like no fuck you he's a good agent we have we're getting murdered we're getting rounded up we're getting exiled he's a good agent. He gets, he gets results. And this has nothing to do with revolution. Like if you want to not like him, if you want to not talk to him outside of this shit, it's fine, but he is not out of the party. He stays in the party. And the, it's kind of a contentious vote, but Bauman eventually gets allowed to stay in the party. And like, yeah, I don't know. I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this, um, on the result and like what you guys think of this whole thing. Cause I think it's one of those things where it's like, man, I don't, I don't like the sound of this guy. And like, there is a fair point to be made that, you know, like if he's capable of that, what else is he capable of? You know? Yeah. It does bring up a really interesting um, dynamic that I, I was definitely thinking about as I was looking into preparation for this episode, uh, just around the political spectrum and kind of the range of ideas that people, um, that people will like own up to, to say like, these, these right, are my right. politics, right? And the, and how that falls along this spectrum or whatever. And 
that some some way that we kind of um that we visualize where we stand on this relative to other people and their politics that they that they claim yeah um, and then how our day-to-day life in in reality for the majority of people on the planet actually involves a lot of all the same shit despite maybe having those the wide difference in our political beliefs and the political beliefs that we would claim as our quote-unquote politics or whatever you know we're all getting to work we're all going home from work we're all interacting with our coworkers. you you are typically unless you're not you're typically pleasant to the people that you work with otherwise if you keep on being an asshole to everyone then you're just the asshole at work yeah and maybe if you try to like carve that niche out at the wrong place you're not going to have that job for a long time or whatever but ultimately like a lot of the way that people behave your the entertainment that you consume the culture that you consume the food that you consume the other products that you consume and then how you consume those things it's kind of you couldn't really distinguish from like an anarchist to a socialist to a liberal to a conservative to a hardcore fascist like everyone's got to eat everyone's got to go to the grocery store everyone's got to go pick up their fucking aunt from the hospital when she needs to get her blood tested or you know all this stuff that has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on your politics and yet we all stake out these claims to all these different ideas without any real material difference in our day-to-day lives right um it it just seems so interesting that we've all arrived at or not all of us but so many of us have arrived at such different points in this spectrum and then to kind of like invert that and think of the people who think who or who believe or who ascribe to the same political tendencies as say I do, for example, and whether or not they're assholes, whether or not they would want to be out there's somebody that I would want to be friends with, whether or not there's somebody that I respect in terms of how totally. they treat <clears throat> others, how they treat uh, women, how they treat people with disabilities, how they, pe- how they treat people. Uh, anyone really Mm -hmm. frankly yeah how do you how do you approach an interaction with another human with another living being with another with a fucking tree you know what i mean yeah and like do i necessarily buy into the idea that everyone who shares my political views is somebody that i would think is a good person and my answer is absolutely not i Mm -hmm. think that there's probably some fucking completely terrible people totally (laughs) my politics and i think case in point moving into the side of these personalities and i don't know if you know martov necessarily personifies any of this but there was definitely a side of trotsky that was um very like self-consumed and egotistical and there's definitely a side of stalin that was fucking brutal and shitty and a bully and just an asshole who just like was always the one who's willing to do the fucking shit that nobody else wanted to do and actually that's what made him useful totally that's the big thing is like i think like these people from across i guess the spectrum of like your morality or whatever um to kind of it takes a village you know it takes everyone from the village idiot to the village fucking bully yeah to, to have a movement 
Mm-hmm. And it's important that you you kind of keep those uh, some of those maybe opposing forces to to check yourself because and otherwise things are gonna get uh, probably ugly down the line. I mean, because yeah, you, you just have a both. bunch of people like yeah telling you the same thing, and you're gonna try and get rid of the people that say different things, and then. Exactly. You, well, you go from to di- dictatorship pretty quick, probably. Well, yeah. Well, you get you get into a groupthink situation, or you get into an uh, a situation where you're like insulating yourself from these outside ideas or these outside perspectives, and like some of them are yeah. d- despicable, and some of them are terrible, and some of them are shitty. And yeah. I think that there is no apologizing for certain uh, yeah. aspects of that. But on the other hand, like if you get confronted by the bully from the uh the other side like where's your bully <laughs> well and i think be, like yeah. standing up to them yeah totally right? and like i think it's mm-hmm. like also like again like to keep going on this like this was not fucking you know today this was again you could get arrested for having books you know like yeah like yeah, uh, exactly. bauman whatever he was um and people can be perfectly nice to everyone and really shitty to one person you know, like there are people who who do everything right and they do one thing, one awful thing, just the worst, terribly wrong. And like, does that mean they have to be they should just be shunned and shut out? I don't know. Uh, I think that's a question for the situation. And like, obviously, Lenin was like, we like I think a good quote is like he said, the party's task was to make revolution against the Romanov monarchy and to vet the morality of comrades only when and insofar as their actions affected the implementation of the task. And you look at that and you're like, that's pretty fucking cold, dude. Like you're saying like, yeah, I don't care if this guy might stab you in the back when you're not looking. Like I only give a fuck if he can help us defeat the czar. But at the same time, it's like, the czar is going to fucking throw us all in a prison if we don't get our shit together, guys. Like, yeah. that's the kind of shit that Lenin was doing, right? Like, we can't be splitting hairs here. Let's and, take this shitty misogynist dude yeah. and keep him on our side. Mm-hmm. And as much as, like, it's, like, easy to look at Lenin and be like, well, he was an autocrat and, like, he tended... He was, like, a total... He totally... He, he, he was an opportunist. He seized power whenever it came his way. He did mm-hmm. whatever he could to implement his agenda. And when he couldn't get it, he got really fucking mad and he stormed off like a baby, but it helped him. It, it got it to a certain extent. It got him to where he needed to be. And he wasn't necessarily wrong in the long run. And the ends don't always justify the means, but like, I think like I was, you know, I, my, my reading group was talking about Mao the other day and we read some Mao stuff. And one of the quotes really stuck out to us. It's like, like I joked in the beginning, it's like a sewing circle. So that's what he said. He was like, a revolution is not like a, like a sewing circle or writing a poem. It is messy. It's ugly. And it's violent. And the truth is like, you need messy, ugly people to do a revolution. You need people who are capable of violence to do a revolution. totally even if that revolution leads to like the best possible outcome yeah it's gonna take like you know you think about the romanovs and a bunch of children had to die because like it wasn't their fault they were just born into the wrong family but like if they had still lived and they had gone into exile they could have come back and a lot of people would have rallied around them so unfortunately politically it makes sense game of fucking thrones like (laughs) it makes sense to kill all these children it sucks yeah. But it's like, okay, well, what about all the children that will die in the civil war if fucking one of these you know, guys like comes back? Anastasia had come back and was right. like, I'm taking my throne back from you, you fucking bald bastard. Like, 
how many more children would have died if she hadn't been killed or whatever, right? Or if yeah. whatever hadn't happened to her. It's, and like, it's a trade off. That's not to just be like, yeah, we should kill children. Like, we shouldn't just kill <laughs> children, but it's like hard decisions have to be made at some point. And like, as much as I find what Bauman did, like the fact that he was just so like unrepentant about it. Um, and there's sort of like varying reports of this. And again, he was eventually kind of like canonized this, like a, so, a, a communist saint by the Soviet Union. So like, clearly there was some erasing going on there and they needed him because he died. He died in the, in the, in the 1905 revolution. And he was sort of like, became like a martyr. So there was a lot of hagiography going on there, but like he clearly was like ready to die for the cause. And that's what you need in a revolution. So yeah, um, totally. Now here's yeah. the thing that didn't, that wasn't the end of it. I think that's really like ca- encapsulates sort of the real difference between Martov and Lenin more than anything. Um, sorry, Wes, did you want to get in on this before we move on? Um, no, I was just going to say that you made a really good point about um, surrounding yourself with like the people that do the dirty work, because I think Lenin is a perfect example of that. He he very rarely got his hands dirty at, or even right, said something right, that would have yeah. got him in trouble. He got all of his supporters and followers to do all the dirty work and say all the things that would have got him in trouble. Yeah, totally. so, yeah. And even at the end, he was kind of like, once he got into power and he was kind of too sick to rule, he kind of became a softy. He kind of softened up and Mm -hmm. he was, he was like wanting to do all this stuff. Like he was like, you know, like, and, and like, it's interesting because like on one hand, there's sort of this, this mythology of like, well, Lenin didn't really want Stalin to become the ruler anymore and like stuff like that. It's like, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, but like who else was going to do it if Trotsky was already in exile and sort of was like, we, I don't want to like, whatever, we'll get into that. Yeah. Like, yeah, no. You know, like, like I think yeah, he kind right. of just started being like, well, now I'll now that we're in power and like I'm old and I can't do anything anymore, now I'll forgive all these people that I have these like spats with or whatever. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like, funny how being on your deathbed man, will make yeah. you do stuff like that. <laughs> totally. And at the same time, it probably was sincere. Like, um, yeah, at the on his deathbed, Lenin was like, I'm I'm I regret that Martov isn't with us now. I regret mm. it. He said that. And it's like yeah, dude, but like, why didn't you regret it 10 years ago, you know? Mm. So, yeah. yeah. So this problem sort of raises a bunch of other issues. And um, they continue along with the conference after this, but it's kind of left a bad taste in not only Martov's mouth, but a bunch of other people who are sort of involved in Iskra, like Plekhanov, um, Potrasov, and Zasulich, like these other people who are big contributors to the board. Um, but what happens is, uh, the Bund comes up and there's sort of this twin disputes that are sort of in the same time that the Bund wants to be sort of recognized as a distinct group. So to summarize it up, the Bund wants the RSDLP to recognize Jewish workers as Jewish workers and the rest, a lot of the rest of the RSDLP, including Martov and Trotsky, who are both Jews, want them want the Bund to be part of the RSDLP as Jewish workers. If you get what I'm saying, right? Um, so there's a split over that, and some of the Bund end up walking out, including Arkady Kremer. So it's interesting because Martov then, he, as as much as he was obviously disgusted by what happened with Bauman, he supported Lenin on this. 
And that's kind of like Martov's downfall in a way is he was very about ideological coherence and sort of like, uh, again, decency more than necessarily like what would get him the most allies or what would sort of like keep his coalition together. Hmm. Um, So that happens too. And then the biggest, the biggest split of all comes when they decide on what a member of the party is. Uh, Lenin kind of wrote this in what is to be done, which is a great thing. Everybody should read. Um, but his, his idea was, uh, party membership should be limited to the most committed people, the people who are involved, the people who are organizers, the people who are at the top, Martov and the others wanted party membership to be more broad and let as many people in as possible to a certain extent. So that becomes a big thing. And what happens is Lenin kind of manipulates the vote. Now that the Bund have all left and they come back eventually, he uses that as a time to call the vote. I'm kind of simplifying it here and I might be sort of oversimplifying it, but basically Lenin uses that time when a bunch of people have left to call a vote on this and get his way. And that's where you get the name Bolshevik and Menshevik which just literally means majority and minority. That's where those words hmm. come from. I didn't know that. The irony is once the people from the Bund and all the people who had stormed out came back, Lenin was never in the majority again, and the Bolsheviks were never the majority. But they were they branded themselves like that, and they won hmm. the fucking narrative war, right? Like, that's another really good example of a thing where it's like, wow, man. You just, uh, yeah. you will do whatever it takes. And, you know, that's how he won in a way too. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of the thing that um, really drove a line between them. And then it was finally, the final nail in the coffin was Lenin was getting sick of how Iskra was run by not only him and Martov, but about four other people. And he wanted to basically rework Iskra so him and Martov and this one other guy had total editorial control um he didn't get his way in that case and he basically left Iskra and was like fuck you you can have it so um that was those were sort of the three things that happened that really just sort of um sort of put a pushed a a big like schism um, schism between yeah good word thank you (laughs) yeah so yeah that's when you get the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think maybe if it's, if you're okay with it, it's a good transition point to go into somebody's background who spent decades trying to navigate that schism. Totally. Totally. And, Let's do it. And reconcile, reunite, kind of forge some sort of common ground between uh, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, and that is Leon Trotsky. Yeah, um, Trotsky. So without Hi, further Leon. ado, <laughs> um, in 1879, Lev Davidovich Bronstein. Lev Davidovich Bronstein uh, was born in what is now Bereslava, Ukraine. Uh, he was, and actually, I looked up where uh, Bereslava is, and it's just so stunning to look at a map with like the main throughways you can see kind of the arterial like highways across uh-huh. eurasia 
and like even even in all the countries in Europe and through Asia and stuff. And it's just so it just calls your attention how every road in Eurasia leads to Moscow. Wow. Like, it's like a spider web branching out from across yeah. all the way to the south as far west as I guess, you know, Germany, <laughs> right. or far away through Germany. And then as far east as, as like Japan and China, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely impressive to see the network and how that was like formed, I guess. And this, it was formed during this time too. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. But you look at like a different country, um, and this, and the like capital and the, the arterial roads that are kind of leading from all corners of that country to that central city and nowhere else that I could find on the planet. Is it at that scale, which I think is really impressive. And it just kind of speaks to the magnitude of what was going on during this time, like the stakes, the amount of people who are wrapped up in this. Um, and the fact that, I mean, these were all like bourgeois, dudes largely um who were kind of the the face of of this movement but they were seizing on opportunity and they were just kind of cobbling this shit together like totally. as they found it from they one literally, moment to the like, next that's the, the insane thing about like listening to the revolutions podcast which is really fucking great shout out mike duncan i come on our show please um but he he really he starts with he starts the russian revolution with um marx and with um and and bakunin and how those guys were fucking meeting in like people's houses and there were like nine people you know like at these first like marxist like internationals and labor congresses and stuff like yeah they started doing like the same shit that like the dsa was doing 10 years ago you know and it's like that's kind of the thing and the scale you got to think on is like where are we in terms of like getting to this goal right and like obviously we're under different constraints there is a climate crisis bearing down on us but like you know it's like you gotta remember that like whatever you do today echoes into the future and like sometimes yeah you gotta start with with nine people sitting around your table drinking beer and eventually that will become all roads lead to moscow cursing the czar yes cursing the czar all (laughs) the way we regularly uh, get together and curse the curse czar. The czar yeah. <laughs> All curses we start. Well, to I think the czar. what you're saying too, like what Craig, not to totally derail you, but like nope. it's also impressive considering at the time, like that we're talking about, the capital of Russia was Petersburg. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah, exactly. And admittedly, so, yeah. this is these are like the contemporary. Um, it was a contemporary map, and no, it totally, would've, but still. it would have been from like the modern USSR, I guess, or like the pre um dissolved <laughs> ussr so that would be why moscow was the cent- kind of the central hub of that network of spokes but still it was very impressive in terms of the scale yeah so um so lev bronstein one of five siblings in a wealthy ukrainian jewish family he moved to the port city of nikolaev in 1896 um, and there he was first exposed to Marxism. By 1898, he had been exiled by Tsarist authorities to Siberia for involvement Ooh. in revolutionary activities. Ooh. So he wasn't, um, he, was get, he was getting involved, right? He was, a, he was a doer, 
as, as I think we probably touched on briefly. Um, initially, his politics were that of an agrarian socialist, but he was won over to Marxism by his then-girlfriend, Alexandra Sovolskaya. Um, oh, God bless girlfriends that radicalize you. Right? What a time. <laughs> what, a, what a great way to go. Because I find the opposite actually happened in Lenin's case. Uh, he radicalized his wife. And she right. said, actually, she was like, he gave her, he gave her capital to read. Um, that's actually a funny story about how the reason capital was published in Russia was because the censors read it and were like, this is so fucking boring. No one is going to read yeah. this. Yeah. Put uh, it, let, let them publish it. That's fine. It's going to yeah. put everyone off. Yeah. And so like Lenin's wife, um, she was like, I don't get this stuff about linen and coats and commodities, but like the stuff about the worker conditions in England, like that pisses me off. That sucks ass. And that was how she sort of converted to Marxism. So yeah, yeah. we stand yeah. a reverse, a gender reversal of, of uh, radicalization. Um, so they married in prison in Moscow uh, prior to being exiled to Siberia. Um, they were actually able to stay together in exile, uh, be, be exiled to the same place. And they had two daughters during that time. So that seems pretty cozy in a way, although I'm sure yeah. it probably wasn't at all. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, by all accounts, in some cases, some of the early, maybe, I don't know, maybe not, but some of the early exile um, like anecdotes that I've heard was that there were like concessions. They had like a plot of land and like even people <laughs> that served them and stuff like that. Um, maybe not in this specific case, but exile didn't necessarily mean like destitution or that they were like resigned to absolute poverty. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it was probably much less than ideal and definitely something that they wanted to escape, but it wasn't like the worst possible circumstance you could be put into. Um, Anyways, he escaped from Siberia in 1902 and fled to London, uh, where he met Lenin. Uh, Lev had been writing for London-based revolutionary newspaper Iskra, The Spark, uh, remotely from Siberia, which I would imagine took place via the post. Kind of imagining uh, like this scene, just like just like uh you know martov's hard at work in the iskra offices he's like whatever and it's like do 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 and then it's like lenin comes in and he's like hey 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 julius i got this great news i got great news we got another jew <laughs> <laughs> no he's i'm just from kidding. siberia <laughs> there were there were actually a lot of jews in uh in in the rsdlp and the communist party um like i said but like yeah i just or like even better like he's like hey Mar julius meet this new guy his name's uh, lev and all of a sudden they look at each other and it's the Ironside music starts playing like it like super zooms in on their eyes. Then it's like, oh, Jews, sweet. We got another Jew in the office. So <laughs> anyway. Um, so Lenin was uh, and um, yeah, and Martov at, at the time were editors for the Spark. Um, and so he started writing for them on a full-time basis. Well, not writing and editing. So he joined the editorial staff. Yeah. He had ditched in the meantime, his first wife, um, who did escape from exile as well, but just Hell not yeah. with him. 
<laughs> which I think might have been a convenient way of leaving her behind mm. for old Lev. Um, but he, he married his second wife, um, Lev Sidoff, which is interesting because she has the same first name <laughs> as him. But, yeah. Guys, Lev and Lever here. Come on, join the party. <laughs> <laughs> I think at this stage, he may have already taken on Trotsky um, right, as yeah. a name, which had no relation to him whatsoever, but it was like a less Judaic name yeah well same with julius martov that wasn't his original name he took on like a russian kind of name yeah and there's an anecdote about how um for his several visits to prisons and whatnot um as he was entering i guess england or moving in between countries he was asked what his name was and he just made it up on the spot he had to submit it for a document and he just made it up on the spot that it was trotsky that's um, Russian. So he's a that, horse going by, like. But it was uh, the name. Trot- <laughs> Trotsky. <laughs> but it was oh. the name of um of one of the prison wardens in one of the prisons he oh, had nice. to stay in oh. for a long time. So an homage to his past, um, which he viewed fondly, I'm sure. <laughs> Anyways, he became one of the paper's leading writers and was a close colleague and friend of Lenin's and Martov's to varying degrees, but certainly, um, but certainly Lenin's. Uh, they would later split when he refused to take sides with him in the second Congress of the SDLP um, when the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks factionalized. Oh, so, come on, buddy. Pick a side. Yeah, he refused. Well, it's not that he refused. He refused to take, take Lenin's side. Yeah, um, yeah. But generally speaking, he did have trouble, not have trouble, but he wouldn't bring himself to commit to mm. either side of it because i think he wanted the larger project to continue moving totally. forward um uh yeah so he later expressed regret for going against lenin at that moment um but he spent the next couple of decades of his life working to reconcile the two sides um who were generally divided over levels of discipline nothing like letting down your friend to develop a permanent guilt complex for for like decades <laughs> right just like well it's the same thing so i didn't mention i kind of forgot about this part but bauman after the whole bauman thing just anytime anytime lenin had an opinion on something he was like yeah yeah i agree with this guy this guy i agree with him that was right. like a big and martov was like you're fucking lying dude there was all this shit like that that i kind of didn't bring up but yeah like it's it is fun i think lenin was definitely like a personality and kind of a guy who like you know like and and i can imagine like him being not mad but disappointed in you was probably like the worst thing in the universe right oh yeah for sure um so trotsky's kind of trying to navigate this um this divide um and you know the the various reasons like the tactical and kind of organizational reasons why those factions split but then also some of the political and interpersonal reasons which we touched with and which we touched on in the bowman um affair totally totally exemplifies um but during this time trotsky was also developing his theory of permanent revolution um which, Do you want to explain that real quickly to me, just in like very fine detail? No, no I'll, I'll give you broad strokes. <laughs> no, no. It, it riffs heavily off of the principle of Marxist internationalism. Um, and basically the idea of permanent revolution is that it's, it's kind of um, 
a bringing into the 20th century of the 19th century equivalent of the internationalism that that Marx and Engels developed. Yeah, because Marx was all about stages of development, right? Like that was a big thing. Ex- exactly. Theory. And um, and dealing with it in a linear almost like a vacuum within one country. And that was sort of like his sort of just like again like like I think like a really like that David um what's his last name? Harvey. David Harvey. David Harvey, yeah. Uh like he kind of talks about like Marx the the his the sort of like the economist versus like, and I think he makes a really good point that like Marx isn't saying that that's how it always happens. It's just sort of like, that's how he sort of built his theory in a sense of like in a vacuum. And that also like, there is sort of like some, some not unfair accusations of Marx's theories of that being very Eurocentric. Oh, for Um, sure. Absolutely. And, and I think like Trotsky, like, again, like, like I haven't like super got into the details of permanent revolution and all of the details of it, but I understand that like he was sort of looking at like Marx had this weird kind of semi-racist thing called the Asiatic mode of production, which he sort of viewed as a like sort of like a capitalist structure with like like a a, a, a theocracy kind of imposed on the top, and that it would sort of ascend to the heights of of capitalism in terms of like what it could create but that it would also sort of calcify there. And he was looking at like the pyramids was kind of his example. I don't know. I might be going too far off base, but like Trotsky was kind of looking at that and the different like stages of development and being like, well, actually in Russia, we kind of have all of those basically. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. So he's bringing that, that theory, um, that idea into like the material conditions of right. his time in the 20th century in Russia, in Eurasia, kind of straddling Europe and Asia and not being able to or envisioning not being able to sustain a revolution with all of the factors at play with all of the European powers the imperial powers with all of the Asian powers and the imperial powers there how do you have a revolution and then sustain um you know a a workers revolution that's going Mm -hmm. to be and the idea was that it needed to take place as an international endeavor it needed to be it needed to involve solidarity so in the same sense as you know those late 1800s um like largest national strikes across russia were groundbreaking at that time the next step would be to have cross-country like solidarity general strikes from country to country between countries and across countries that involved the the workers revolting against the ruling elites across a number of countries at once. Which is kind of expanding off what Mark said was like the revolution has to be national first and then international. Exactly. To a certain extent. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's basically uh, the gist of, of that in very, very broad and basic strokes. But that was when he began to start working on that. And he made a number of other contributions to Marxism generally. Yeah. Um, but obviously, as, in, as is implied here, and I've totally glossed over a lot of the detail for the sake of brevity, but he is a very good writer. He is an amazing journalist and, and writer generally. And a very um, sensual lover. <laughs> oh, yes, the I most sensual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also, but also um, a very strong orator, like actually yeah. probably the best orator of like the revolutionaries, uh, the Russian revolutionary, like... Um, faces that you generally 
associate mm -hmm. with, yeah. with this time. He was definitely the like <clears throat> rabble rouser and the one who got everyone fucking Wait. like all fucking fiery and, and ready to go out and he was Whatever. the one that managed to stoke all the soldiers up to crush their comrades at Kron. I guess we'll probably talk about that. Yeah, he was the one that was like, "Go fuck those dudes up." Yeah, go, go fuck those workers up. <laughs> Forget about all that other stuff I yeah. said. Um, exactly, and that's just a testament to how strong his mm -hmm. oratory yeah. uh, knack was. So um, the first Rus Ru uh, Russian Revolution in 1905 saw him in the midst of a return to Russia first to Kiev and then to St. Petersburg, where he was a prolific leafleteer and activist. Um, again, kind of straddling that, both talk the Talk about a lost art, like leafleteering and pamphleteering. Like, yeah. You don't get to be those things anymore. Because, I mean, you still do to a certain extent, but it's kind of more online now or like whatever. Like people get radicalized. through. We need like a Twitter thread a tier kind of name yeah. yeah and the thing the thing with pamphlets is i mean they're great it's like a zine right yeah, zines totally. are great um but it's just as likely that it's going to be like an eyebrow razor and like oh well <laughs> all <laughs> right yeah I need to line the litter box with something it's kind or of that salesman like, this per is the best thing i've ever seen yeah totally it's like that salesman personality it's like it's not about it's not about your it's not about your um it's not about this one. It's about the average, you know, it's about like, right. like I'm not afraid to get someone like shove it back at me when I know that the next three people will be like, all right. And then one of them will be come back and be like, can I do this? Like, that's a really yeah. important part of it. Right. So, oh, exactly. And I'm sure yeah. that is exactly why people who do that do it. Yes. Yeah. For that one, um, that one sign up that you get. Right. Um, so yeah, shortly after the 1905, Revolution, the St. Petersburg or Petrograd Soviet was formed. Uh, Trotsky was elected vice chairman. And then when the chairman, um, I believe, died, he was elected chairman. So what's so he, a Soviet? I think we should talk a little bit about that because there may be listeners that don't know what that is. There may be yeah. uh, 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 hosts that don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, so the Soviet, uh, from my understanding, is basically like the idea being that if you're going to pursue revolution, then there needs to be some sort of an infrastructure, a power structure yeah. in place to replace what's what you're overthrowing. And a Soviet was a kind of a workers congress. Yeah, because it literally means like council or congress, right? Exactly. That's what exactly. it means in Russian. And so people who were involved and who were active and who were um, down for the cause and were involved in the Soviet. And the more people that there were, the, the bigger the Soviet grew, but mm -hmm. it also had its own like hierarchy and process and decorum and all that stuff. A, um, not unlike a DSA local, except not <laughs> at all, but yeah. Like <laughs> and so this is kind of the parallel power structure that these revolutionary movements yeah are kind of galvanizing into gradually. Well, it, it functioned in the same way that like, you know, the leadership of like a, a trade union would function and like, exactly. And except it was, it was a little like a, in theory, more democratic or whatever, because like, you know, by that point, like trade unions in the UK had kind of become their own thing with their own, like, you know, like latching on to the, the, the owning class or whatever. But yeah, it was sort of like the, the, the basic structure is very similar, I think. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. So he is an absolute workhorse. He's doing all the writing. He's doing a ton of speaking. He's doing a lot of activism. And um, not that other people aren't, but like relative to other people in leadership, 
in the Soviet, he's definitely like the doer. He's mm. the one who's like, I said it, we're doing it. Um, this is it's this is going forward. And he, ha- he was really good at being able to inspire that call to action in people, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and he was renowned through his life as being the like being the personification of dedication to administrating whatever office he was in, whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever power he held, he was, he threw himself entirely into it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, even to a fault. (laughs) And, um, yeah, so the St. Petersburg Soviet was shut down and leaders charged and exiled. Uh, so for Trotsky, that's his second, maybe third exile at this point. Yeah, um, yeah, these guys all loved going into exile. I mean, they yeah. didn't love it, but you know. Um, yeah, Martov, he was, he basically, he. I don't think Martov did come back to Russia until after 1917 as well. They were, they were pretty much in exile the whole time, so. Right. Yeah. Um, so he goes back to Siberia again, escapes to London. <laughs> so he's kind of just rehashing a well-trodden path for himself there. Um, he joins Pravda in London as an editor in 1908. Um, Pravda is. It's truth. funny too. Cause like, that's like the next iteration of their paper or whatever. Exactly. Um, but like even before Iskra, Lenin and Martov had another paper. Um, what was it called? Uh, yes. It, yeah. It was I like another, they, like, they just like, you know, keep making those papers basically. Yeah, for sure. And, and Trotsky is <clears> the same, like wherever he goes, he's active as a journalist, active as an mm-hmm. editor, active uh, in polemics, active in propaganda and activism <laughs> and generally just agitating. He gets kicked out of countries that he goes to just for being the anti-war activist that he is, and just having for being kind of such a sensual lover. The clout and leave. exactly, <laughs> Mr. Chatsky, you must leave England for you love our women too much. <laughs> You're making us look bad, <laughs> or worse, rather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So he's deeply involved in Russian socialists in the uh, Socialist Labour Party politics and. He travels around Europe as a writer and reporter, reporting on um, on the Balkans around the beginning of Whoa. the First World War as well. He's still split with Lenin and the Bolsheviks over various issues, um, one of which was the tactic of expropriations, quote-unquote. Yeah, expropriations. Um, which Great is one. where we get our first glimpse of... Um, of Stalin, Comrade actually. Stalin, <laughs> who was, was a bank robber, an expert expropriator. <laughs> <laughs> he loved that shit, man. <laughs> um, so basically, expropriations was the policy, or the uh, I don't know if it was the policy, but the practice of fundraising for the party through robberies mm-hmm. of banks mm-hmm. and companies, and you know, you got to yeah. get parties got to get money. Yeah, from somewhere. I mean, I know yeah. th- that was definitely like a thing that they did for a while. I know eventually they kind of gave it up because it was just kind of too hairy. Of course. Um, <laughs> like even when they succeeded, right? Like I think yeah. part of it too was like the money could be tracked. It became and like a huge issue for them. And it was like like. I don't really talk about it in my section, so I'll just bring it up now. Yeah. Like some of these robberies were brutal. I think yeah, yeah, Stalin totally. led a robbery where they killed forty people. I think. Oh my god! And like, yeah. Well, a lot of them by accident, I think, like or just yeah. like uh, not bro. accident, totally. but they were just like fuck, 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 start shooting, no, like or whatever, like blowing, like. Yes, yeah. you're so right because this is 
like dynamite and revolvers like have been around but they haven't been around for that long at least yeah. not widely available yeah. to like like these amateurs who now can just like do all these revolutionary like robberies and like things but they're like they're amateurs with their weaponry and things go wrong often <laughs> so yeah yeah. <laughs> Wait, so I pull the hammer back and then fire? Pfft, oh my god. Yeah. Well, yeah, just, and think about it like even like the botched like assassination attempts on like yeah, all these czars or or even like yeah. Archduke Ferdinand and things like that. Well, so it's like it was like, a wild I think, time. Like, as much as like guns like level the playing field in terms of like you don't have to train someone for years in the way you do like a sword or whatever to make them really deadly with it. It's like you know yeah. like guns aren't that like they're very messy and ineffective when you actually look at the statistics on them and yeah, they're yeah, like absolutely it's surprising. even more messy yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> like yeah because wasn't uh, it's like what not... we think this fuse takes an hour to burn but it yeah. could take 20 minutes so just run <laughs> and that's how um the one before who's the one before nicholas um he was blown up right i think yeah, uh, no, yeah, his dad, Alexander the... Th well, no, right. they Alexander tried, they the tried third, to blow him up. But they tried they, to blow him up. Alexander the second lens. was the one that was successfully assassinated. Yes. they blew him up good. They did blow him up good. <laughs> but yeah, it was a wild time for... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there so. was all that... Well, that was like the image, like up, like around the turn of the century. Like at this time, it wasn't actually like the communist. It was like the bomb-throwing anarchist was like oh, yeah. the stereotype. <laughs> the that was like the terrorist of, of the like the Islamic terrorist of the day or whatever. Right. It was the same thing. It was like, Oh, these filthy Italians, they're throwing bombs and shooting people with shotguns and other things. Abending society. Yeah. Right. <laughs> How dare they? Yeah. Wild. Hello listeners. That's actually where we're going to leave things for this episode. We realized we had far too much to talk about to cram into just one release. So we're splitting this into a two parter. So you can check back in a couple of weeks for the conclusion to our discussions about Martov, Trotsky and Stalin as they relate to Lenin and the Russian revolution. In the meantime, be sure to check out our Twitter page at two bananas pod to keep up to date with all the latest second banana news. Be excellent to each other, party on, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you some more in a couple weeks. Bye.